We're in Matthew chapter 1. And um, hopefully when I get chances, I'm, I want, this is, I'm just going to stick to this path in the future. So maybe a long Bible study, but it's an awesome one. Uh, Matthew has been called the bridge builder between the Old Testament and the New Testament. First of all, it's the first book of the New Testament, so naturally there's the bridge. But more importantly, the reason it's called the bridge builder is because it's constantly quoting the Old Testament, 129 times. It uses phrases like, that it might be fulfilled, nine times. That which was spoken, 14 times. Therefore, building a bridge and thus connecting the Old Testament covenants, promises, prophecies with the New Testament fulfillments and realities. And it was written to the Jews. It was written by Matthew, written to the Jews, and it portrays Jesus as their king. And the Gospel of Matthew basically is a picture of Jesus revealing, Jesus the king revealing his kingdom and what it's all about. Now, the kingdom that Jesus revealed is a lot different than what the Jews were expecting. And it, you know, and it caused problems. They were expecting an outward, political, worldly kingdom. You know, take over. You're the Messiah. But, you know, and Jesus will do that someday at his second coming. But at his first coming, it was different. Jesus, at his first coming, came to establish a heavenly, inward, spiritual kingdom. And he makes it clear in Luke chapter 17. I read, Now when he, Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, you cannot become a part of the spiritual kingdom that Jesus is speaking of. Uh, through carnal, fleshly, um, religious efforts. It doesn't happen. You must become a spiritual being to be a part of the spiritual kingdom. No one is a spiritual being. We are all dead spiritually, disconnected from God because of our sin. And so you can't make yourself a spiritual being. God has to do it. Now this kingdom, it's established by the gospel. The gospel basically is, it was established by the gospel through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when a person repents, believes, God works this miracle within them where they're born again, where their spirit dies and Jesus comes to live within them, and then a person becomes a spiritual being. And the kingdom of God is established within them. God's Spirit resides and rules in their hearts. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, the change that occurs takes place within a person, but the outward flesh is not changed. It causes a lot of problems. As a, as a friend of mine said, I looked in the mirror and it was still the same old ugly mug that was there the day before with all its sinful tendencies and all the training it had had to sin. And it's a struggle. And, and so it doesn't happen in our flesh, but inwardly, but inwardly we 
become different, guys. And, and, and a lot of times I tell people, examine yourself. You know, we become well, more truthful and honest. We, we love the truth, the truth of God's Word. We're honest about ourselves. People around us, the world around us, is almost brutally honest sometimes in a loving way. But we have a love for God, a person who is born again, changed, has God's Spirit with him, trusts God totally, desires to obey Him completely, and loves other people no matter who they are, what they look like, or how that person treats them. That's, that's, that's when the kingdom of God has come within a person. Um, a person like this who's born again has died to self, has become rather unselfish, even though their flesh isn't, their spirit is, other-centered, with a desire to serve others, and a willingness to lay down their life for other people as well. More focused on heaven, on preparing for it, helping other people to get there. Now, Satan and other people, they'll object. They'll actually come against these change, changes and this kingdom coming to exist within a person. But let me tell you, the main struggle, and you guys probably know this if you're a born-again believer, is not with other people. We're saying, it's with our flesh. Our flesh is a big problem. Now, the kingdom of God is very simply wherever God is king. And at this time, on this planet, that only exists within born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And when a person's born again and begins to be led by God's Spirit, the kingdom of God will work its way out into their flesh and into the world around them. About the author of this gospel, Matthew. He was a Jew. And for you fans of the chosen, there's nothing to indicate Matthew was or wasn't a savant who fits somewhere on the autism Asperger spectrum. That was uh, Dallas Jenkins and company using a little liter literary license. But it's cool. I really like Matthew in that, in that show, the way they portray him. But Matthew was called Levi also. And uh, so scholars surmise that probably meant he was a member of the tribe of Levi, which was the priests of Israel. And as a priest, Matthew would have been ministering to the people. But when we find him in the beginning, he's doing anything but that. He's a tax collector, ripping the people off. You know about tax collectors. They had contracts with Rome. And they, well, they were considered traitors in cahoots with Rome by the Jews. They got rich overcharging people for taxes. And the Roman soldiers were their enforcers, and they were hated by the Jews. It's a testament to Jesus that when uh, Matthew joined the disciples, he could hang around with them at all, especially Simon the Zealot. A zealot was kind of like a uh, Jewish secret agent, an insurrectionist trained to kill Romans and their collaborators. It'd be kind of like uh, Matthew, Matthew and um, Simon the Zealot being together would be kind of like a white supremacist in a Black Lives Matter or an Antifa member being together. I mean, hey, that's the gospel, guys. That's the kingdom of God coming to this earth. Praise the Lord. It's amazing. And so the call of Matthew, we want to look at that first, kind of how he came to become Jesus' disciple. We find in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And in this passage, we're going to see 
the King Jesus at work, operating according to kingdom priorities and principles. I begin reading in chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So Matthew arose and followed him. It says in Luke, in this passage in Luke, that he left everything to follow him. Now it happened, verse 10, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Matthew was an outcast in society because of his vocation. But he experienced acceptance and love from Jesus. And he was so affected by, by Jesus that he left everything to follow him. And he wanted his friends to know Jesus, so he threw a party. He invited Jesus and his disciples. And uh, disreputable people like himself. And here's the deal. Jesus went, which is cool. I think that's awesome. Not because he wanted to get into partying, but because he loved sinners. He wanted to connect with them so he could save them. And the self-righteous religious guys, known as the Pharisees, they noticed this party. And you know what? They had problems with it. But here's the, here's the deal with the Pharisees. They had misunderstandings about, well, about themselves and about the kingdom of God. And so in verse 11 there, chapter 9 of Matthew, it says, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Implying that the Pharisees themselves, they were not sinners. <laughs> well, and these guys appeared outwardly. I mean, everybody would look at them and say, Oh, they're real spiritual people back then. Because outwardly they appeared to keep this strict um, religious code. But in their hearts, there was darkness and sin. And Jesus would allude to this in Matthew 23 when he would call them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Or he called them cups that were clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. Sinners just like the tax collectors these guys were in need of God's forgiveness. And judging the tax collectors demonstrated these religious guys' blindness to their own sinfulness and pride. You know, when a, when a person is aware, truly aware, and understands their own sinfulness, it gets rid of your pride. You won't be condemning others. Instead, you'll be humbly asking, who am I to judge somebody when my sin is so great? And, and Jesus is trying to lead the Pharisees to this realization when he says in verse 12, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Every person, every person has a fatal sickness it's a spiritually fatal sickness called sin, which is rebellion against God. Hey, we're born with it. We inherit it, inherited it from our grandfather, Adam. Jesus, our king, the great physician, came to us with this diagnosis. But great news, because of his great love for us, he desires to show us love and mercy. He's awesome. He desires to heal us to cure us of our sin and rebellion. And he desires for us to show mercy to others as well. 
He does not desire our self-righteous religious sacrifices. Those things do not alleviate in any way our condemnation for our sin and rebellion. They can have the opposite effect. They can produce pride in us toward others like these Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees needed to know what the tax collectors already knew. Jesus did not come to call the righteous because there are no righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one, Romans 3.10 tells us. There are only sinners who deserve to die and go to hell and need to repent, believe, and be born again. That's why Jesus came, to rescue us sinners from our sin and this sinful world, that we might become a part of his eternal kingdom. And Matthew, the great sinner, the tax collector, responded to his call. Praise the Lord. One other thing to note here from this passage, the tax collectors felt loved and accepted by Jesus. But the religious guys, they felt uncomfortable with him. And we need to make sure the opposite is not true of us, guys. You know, we can, all of us can get self-righteous and religious and all this, and that's who feels comfortable. And then unbelievers, man, they feel uncomfortable with us. Not that, you know, we're, we're acting sinfully or anything like that, but they, you know, they, it's like Becky, Becky Pippert's one of her, I talk about Becky a lot because she's like one of my mentors from her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. It's a great book, but she said one of her friends came to her one time and said, you know, Becky, Around you, I never feel more convicted about the, my lifestyle and who I am. He said, but you know what? I never feel more loved either. That's how it needs to be with us, guys. Not the opposite. You know, and, and like the Pharisees, we can get misfocused on being a religious performer, which accomplishes nothing in us to make us right, in any way to make us right with God. You know, prophet called our... The Lord called our, our works filthy rags, actually. And we lose focus on what's really important, the kingdom priorities. Jesus is our example of having this right focus of kingdom principles and priorities. And talking about Becky Pippert again, she, in her book, mentions three areas of contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. The first is priorities. Jesus' priorities were loving God, and, loving, and, and, and obeying him and loving people, all people. The Pharisees, the religious guys, well, they really didn't have any, any room for loving people in their lives because they were too focused on trying to be self-righteous, to keep the law. And it, they, they didn't have time to focus on other people. They didn't have time to love anybody. Contrast, area contrast number two was holiness. You know, Jesus' holiness was inherent perfection. It's who he was. He didn't have to try to be holy. He just was. He was God. Yet it didn't drive him away from other people. Instead, it drew him to sinners and, and to seek to radically identify with sinners so he could minister to them. He became human to get close to us. Whereas the Pharisees, well, the word Pharisee means separated one. <laughs> they were separating themselves from others. Their understanding of holiness focused strictly on an ex external conformity to a code or a rules, the law. That's what their holiness was all about. 
didn't produce love, which is what, what the purpose, well, Romans 13, 8 tells us uh, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Instead, external conformity made them proud, they despised others, and they separated themselves from other people. And the last was in obedience. Jesus, he was totally obedient and in submission to God's will. Whereas the Pharisees, like all legalists, well, it was kind of pick and choose for them. You know, they, they picked the things of God's will that they thought they could keep and that they thought made them right with God and made them feel superior to others, none of which was true. And they ignored, as Jesus said, the weightier matters, love, faithfulness, righteousness, mercy. The kingdom Jesus is revealing is characterized by a loving, hard obedience to God and a love for others. Whereas, as we see the Pharisees' religion, their kingdom, it's characterized by selfishness, self-focus. Basically, love for self. So, Matthew chapter 1, finally, right? Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In order for someone to become king, well, they have to prove their claim to the throne. And so, Matthew... He starts doing that right away. Chapter 1, verse 1, by listing Jesus', Jesus genealogy. And in Jesus', Jesus genealogy, say that five times. <laughs> we get the full spectrum of moral character. You get the good, get the bad, you even get the devilishly wicked. But the Lord makes no attempt to hide his, to cover up his dirty laundry. You know, Jesus came in the flesh to identify with us sinners all humans soiled by sin in order to forgive us he is willing to wade in in order to redeem us to save us we read on the son of david the son of abraham now in order to be the messiah in order to be the king of israel a man would have to be a descendant of david and a descendant of Abraham. God had made covenant promises with both of them. So we need to talk about covenants. Covenant's big in the Old Testament. Covenant is a solemn proclamation from God recorded in Scripture that puts him into a relationship of responsibility with a person, a family, a nation, or the world. God says, this is what I'm going to do. Now, most of the covenants of the Bible are unconditional, with one notable exception. Conditional covenants are predicated on what both parties do. Hey, I'll do this if you do your part as well. Unconditional, in unconditional covenants, God declares, this is what I'm going to do, period. No requirements from us other than to believe it's a promise, and, and we just have to have the ability to believe God is able to keep his promises, which he is. God said, this is what I'm going to do no matter what. No conditions on it. And the flow of the Bible can be seen through the covenants. We're going to look at it in just a second. Um, God's plan for redemption of humanity is revealed through them, and because God is the only one who accomplishes it accomplishes anything spiritual in our lives, guys. 
We can't do that. Our job simply is to believe and trust in him. And the Bible emphasizes this over and over. Like in Genesis 15, it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or in uh, John 6, 29, where uh, Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he sent. Over and over we hear this. And eight covenants are given in the Bible. Some say nine, but the last one's kind of... a part of two other ones. Four of the eight deal specifically with the nation Israel. A fifth one specific uh, initially was strictly for the nation Israel, but then it opened up to the Gentiles, and that was God's intention all alone, actually. And so, just have them listed here by when they happened or who 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 was there when it, when God made the the covenant or the proclamation. The first is the Eden covenant genesis 2 in the garden god declares that here it all is it's all for you except one tree if you eat of the fruit of that tree you'll die and that happened second one was the adam covenant after the fall god declares this is how it's going to be the woman's curse and the man's curse but we saw great hope in that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent satan and we see there the first mention of the gospel in the bible The third covenant is the Noah covenant, Genesis 9. After the flood, God promised he'd never judge the world again and destroy the world by water. And the sign of that, of course, we know is the rainbow. Fourth covenant, and this is a cool one, the Abraham covenant, Genesis 12. Sandy Adams, my pastor in Georgia, um, Zach's dad, who we're praying for, he has a great way of remembering this covenant. Sod seed and salvation sod god says i'm going to give you this land seed hey and i'm going to make you a great nation and salvation through your seed singular the whole world will be blessed then came the moses covenant the conditional covenant the law over and over god says you'll be let you'll be blessed if you keep my rules you'll be cursed if you don't then the regathering covenant of deuteronomy 30 God declares, even if the children of Israel are driven out of the land, he will always bring them back. And the land will perpetually will be in their perpetual ownership forever. Which brings us the David covenant. God declared that David, from David's seed there would be a ruler who would rule over Israel forever. That's why what we're going through today is so important. That and the Abraham covenant. And finally, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, God declares that there will no longer be external rules or regulations to keep, but he will write his law in our minds and in our hearts, and each person under the new covenant will know him personally. He will forgive all sins and remember them no more. Well, the children of Israel failed to keep the conditional covenant, number five. And so God replaced it with the new covenant. As we read in Hebrews 8, Chapter 7 through 13. And it's quoting Jeremiah 31 where the actual covenant is listed. And I read, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their leaders in the day that I took them by their hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. 
because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And then the writer of Hebrew importantly adds in verse 13, in that he, God, says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old, it's ready to vanish away. Now, that said, how's all this work together? Well, regarding the New Testament, well, Jesus made it clear. He came to the Jewish people only. He says in Matthew 15, 24, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And God's plan was for the Jews to accept him and the new covenant. And then they would become a light to the rest of us so we could be gathered in to this new covenant. That was God's plan. But the Jews rejected Jesus. They got the Romans to crucify him. Daniel 9, 26 predicted this. Messiah the Prince would be cut off, but not for himself. He was cut off, cut off for all of us, both Jew and Gentile. But he would initially be rejected by and cut off by the Jews. So here's the deal. And we're going to study this in the next few weeks on Sunday mornings. Tyrell will be touching on this. The Jews cut Jesus off, so God cut them off, but not forever, only for a time. In order, as Paul says in Romans 11, that we Gentiles might be grafted into the new covenant. Jesus said to the Jews in Matthew 23, 39, you shall see me no more till, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God would always maintain a remnant among the Jews. Uh, Tyler spoke, I forget what he called them. I, never mind. He mentioned it last week. A, a, something, a remnant of faith. That's what he called them last week. He would always maintain that remnant. But it says in Romans chapter uh, 11, verse 7, the rest of Israel will be blinded to the fact of who Jesus is. They're blinded. Like my friend's. Sheila and Al that I worked with at a big corporation in the sales department. We were good friends. And when I got saved, man, started, you know, studying the Old Testament. And I read Isaiah 53, man. And I go, you guys got to see this. And I went to them and I talked to them about it. And they got really intrigued and actually excited about it until they went home, talked to the rabbi, talked to their family. And then they ultimately just came back, rejected Jesus. And we, we think, man, it's so obvious it's him. But nope. No, nope, that's us it's talking about. Or my friend Joel, my old, my old Jewish buddy that I played basketball with, Joel. Man, I, I came to Joel, and I was just going to tell him about Jesus one time. First time I was going to do that, I came up to him, and he just said, not interested. Just like that. It was over. Man, it's heartbreaking blindness, guys. And we need to pray for him. 
Romans 9, verse 30 through 32, I think we'll study this next week. What shall we say then to Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of, righteousness of faith? But Israel, the Jews, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. And Romans 11, 11 adds, I say then, have they, the Jews, stumbled that they should fall. That is, are the Jews cut off forever? Paul answers, certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them, the Jews, to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when every Gentile who's going to be saved is saved, then the Lord will return to Israel. And as it says in Zechariah 12, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him who mourn, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And the nation of Israel will repent and believe in Jesus, their king. As it says in Romans eleven twenty six, then all Israel will be saved. A national turning from Judaism to Christianity. That's going to be cool. It's going to be glorious. The Bible instructs us to pray for this. When the Jews turn from the old Moses covenant based on the law to the new covenant based on faith that Jesus established by his own body and blood on the cross. You know, a person comes under the new covenant when they repent and turn from their sin. Denounce it, renounce it. And they believe in the gospel that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. And he proved it by rising from the dead. And then they're born again, which is so important. The one that's missed so often. When you're born again, God does a work in you where your rebellious spirit dies, is crucified with Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And God writes his laws in your mind, his mind and your heart. And you know him personally through God's Spirit dwelling within you. And then we are set free. We're set free from the Moses covenant. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Can I have an amen to that? Praise the Lord. We're free. If a person does not repent and believe and become born again into the new covenant, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, then he remains under the Moses covenant, the law of sin and death, with its demands and consequences, ultimately death and eternal separation from God and hell. John 3.18, he who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he did not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All right, let's look at verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac. Now, the word begot there is New King James for what it says in the ESV was the father of. I'm going to use begot. It's quicker so we can get through this quicker. But um, he had a son named Isaac whose name means laughter. And the reason he was named laughter is because his mom laughed when God said that she would have a son at 90 years old. And I think I might laugh, too, you know. But indeed, God did perform that miracle. In order to keep his covenant with Abraham, the sod seed and salvation. And when Abraham died, God 
made his covenant with his son Isaac, the same one, sod, seed, salvation. And Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob actually had an older brother, a twin, Esau. Jacob obtained the birthright from Esau. When Esau was very hungry, took an oath and agreed to sell his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. I hope it was good stew. Esau would be described in the Bible as profane. Someone devoid of spiritual sensitivity and inclination. It, 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 it literally means not to step over the threshold. We might say of someone at this time, man, you'd never see that guy set a, or that girl set a foot in the church. This guy was not interested. Like someone today, very fleshly, carnal. He despised his birthright, Genesis 25, 34 says. He apparently didn't see his birthright of anything of importance or anything. You know, did, you know what are, who cares about all that stuff? You know, look, why do I care? I'm so hungry I could die. Give me some of that red stew, bro. Now. So God honored the stew transaction. And when, and when Isaac died, God made that sod, seed, and salvation covenant with Jacob rather than his older brother Esau. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now, as we go through this, I want you to notice, like I said, it's a wide spectrum. And there are going to be people where you're just going, why did Jesus put them in there? You know, but he did. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Jacob had 12 sons. Why did God pick Judah, his fourth son, to be in Jesus' line? We don't know. We do know that God has perfect knowledge, wisdom, and works everything out perfectly. And Judah did so show some good characters we saw when we went through Genesis. He made a, he made a good decision at, you know, at one point, but there are examples of failure all over the place of this Judah. Like the next phrase, verse 3, chapter 1, Matthew. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. He had these two kids by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. See, Judah was, Tamar was his daughter. She had been married to us for, he died. And by Jewish law, the, the younger brother had to marry her then and try and raise up an heir to the older brother. And then that guy died. And so going down the line, Judah said, uh, my son seemed to be dropping, being married, you know, and he, began, and he shirked his responsibility to give her a husband, kind of put her off. And so Tamar took matters into her own hands. She veiled her face like a prophet. She enticed her father-in-law to sleep with her so she could get pregnant and raise up an heir to her deceased husband. That her plan worked is a testament to Judah's lack of character. He admitted it when it was discovered later. And Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, I love, I love that she's cool. Woman of faith, second of five women in Jesus, which is unusual. It was unusual for ladies to be in a person's genealogy or lineages in that day. But Rahab is also the second woman out of two listed here who were prostitutes. Boaz begot Ruth. Third woman listed, a Gentile, not even a Jew. 
people who are outsiders who are looked down upon by the Jews. And that matter, the Pharisees, and this shows their pride. They, they, they looked upon the Jews as nothing more than kindling for the fires of hell. Jesus says, nope, she's in my, she's in my genealogy. I'm thankful for that. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And so the royalty part of Jesus' lineage begins here. All the kings in, da in, in, in David's line and Jesus' family will be flawed. All of them. Some will be considered good, but they'll still have their flaws. David was the first king, that ruddy little shepherd kid. But his dad didn't even consider him important enough to bring him in with his older brothers when Samuel and present him to the prophet Samuel when he honored them with a visit. But here's the thing about David that I love about him so much. He had a huge heart for God. <laughs> huge. He knew God. He knew, he knew what God was like. He loved God. He trusted God with his whole heart. He did great things for God. He would become known as the songwriter of Israel. He wrote a lot of the psalms that we read. And he was a great warrior. But let me tell you something about David. He had great sin as well. He disobeyed God and he numbered the people at one point while he was king. And brought about a plague which killed thousands of people. And then there's Bathsheba whom he committed adultery with, and had her husband Uriah murdered to cover it up. Reading further, it says there, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, the fourth woman mentioned in Genia. I think it's cool. Jesus was four women. Y'all, if y'all don't know it. But the fourth woman mentioned sinful women, Bathsheba. Maybe the most famous adulteress in the history of the world. Matthew doesn't even call her by name. But her son Solomon would rule Israel when it became the greatest kingdom on earth. And would be very wise, but not always. He married 700 wives. Had 300 concubines. Which means a thousand mother-in-laws. <laughs> And all these ladies brought adultery into Israel. Solomon begot Rehoboam. He reigned 17 years, mostly bad. He's the one who's responsible for the 10 northern tribes splitting, going up and starting their own religion in the north. Rehoboam begot Abijah, who was mostly bad. He reigned three years. Abijah begot Asa, who reigned 41 years. He was mostly good and godly. He removed the idols that his father and grandfather worshipped. But as he got older, he was rebuked by God for trusting more in political maneuverings than in God. It's a good word for us today, isn't it? He developed a foot ailment in his 39th year. 2 Chronicles 16 says, In his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. And he died. Doctors, guys, man, they're a great, they can be a great blessing from God. Amen? But we should seek the Lord for healing. He is Jehovah Rapha, our healer. And all healing comes from Him, even if it's through a doctor. 
And so Asa, well, he, he started well, but he didn't end well. And Asa, verse 8, begot Jehoshaphat, who reigned 25 years, mostly good. But he apparently lacked spiritual discernment because he joined forces with evil king Ahab of the north and his w wicked wife Jezebel. Y'all have heard about them, right? They had a wicked daughter named Athaliah. And he even married his daughter to this, his son to, this, to their daughter. So he lacked some spiritual discernment there. And Jehoshaphat begot Joram, also known as Jehoram. He married this Athaliah girl, and he reigned in eight, eight years, and he was bad. He killed, and I'm sure under Athaliah's influence, he killed all six of his brothers. She actually would later try and just totally wipe out all the kings of Judah. She failed. But, but uh, this guy returned idolatry to Israel. And at this point, which is interesting regarding, you know, oh, it's in the Bible, it's perfect. You know, he skips 76 years, Matthew does. He skips four kings, and, and we think, well, why? Well, we don't know, but it's apparently not unusual. Scholars tell us, and not all four, it wasn't because they were bad, not all four. As a matter of fact, 69 of the 76 years were ruled by good kings, the last two. Uh, Joash and, I think, Amaziah. But, um, nevertheless, it skips four. And next list, the great-great-grandson of Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah, who reigned 52 years, mostly good. But apparently this guy only sought the Lord because of the influence of a priest named Zechariah. When Zechariah died, Uzziah seemed to lose his way, and he became filled with pride, and he decided he was going to become a priest. He went in the temple to do the sacrifices, which was forbidden. So God struck him with leprosy, and he ended up, his final years, he couldn't even go in the temple for the rest of his life. And so Uzziah, verse 9, begat Jotham, who reigned 16 years and was good. He had some good influences there. Like his dad, he had, he had um, Isaiah and maybe Micah and Hosea, who were to, in the north, but they were there. Jotham begot Ahaz, who reigned 16 years. And this guy, Ahaz, was very wicked. He shut the temple down, locked its doors. He, he brought in idolatry back, and he even gave his kids his sacrifices, burnt sacrifices to the idols. And Judah suffered many defeats, a lot of devastation during his reign. But at one point, and this is important to what we're studying today, the ten northern tribes and Syria had come together and they had surrounded Jerusalem and, and, and Ahaz was shaken in his boots. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah to him to give him a comforting word. He said, look, hey, here's the deal. You're not, the city will be fine. It's not going to be overcome. But, here, but the prophet Isaiah said to him, but God says, hey, seek a sign from me. Ask a sign of God. He'll give it to you. So Ahab, in his indifference, says, I'm not going to ask God for a son. I'm not going to tempt him in that way. And so Isaiah says to him, everyone is getting tired of you, and so is God. But then God, in his mercy, through Isaiah, utters the famous prophecy found in chapter 7 of his prophecy. 
Verse 13 and 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You heard this before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. At the end of our chapter today, we'll see Emmanuel means God with us, referring to the coming Messiah, the Son of the Virgin, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so Ahaz begot Hezekiah, who reigned 29 years and may have been the best, but he had some missteps. He showed all the treasures of Egypt to the Babylonians, which would be their impetus for invading later. And he had, as a son, maybe the worst king in the history of Israel, a kid named Manasseh. Verse 10, chapter, uh, verse 10, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, who reigned 55 years and did a lot of damage. This guy was a maniacal idolater. He even set up idols within the temple. Um, he persecuted the faithful. It's rumored that he was the one, he had the prophet Isaiah sawn in two, and he was conquered finally and carried away. The Assyrians put fish hooks in his nose, carried him back up, carried him up to it. But the cool thing is, and to me, he's kind of a picture of us sinners. There in the dungeon, in the depths, he humbled himself before God and he repented. He asked God to forgive him, and God actually restored him to his kingdom. Unheard of. They, you know, you didn't do that unless God had to work the deal. He went back and he tried to fix things. A lot of damage he'd done, a lot of, especially with his son here. Um, Manasseh begot Ammon, and in the ESV it's Amos. He reigned only two years. He was so bad that he was killed by officials in his family. And Amos, or Ammon, begot Josiah, who reigned 31 years, was considered one of the best kings, along with Hezekiah, and he would be the last king who would try to keep, it, keep Israel on track as far as their religion, and, and bring any type of religious reform. And he was a good king, though. He, he, they found the uh, copy of the law, and they realized we hadn't been following this, and he just made a lot of reforms in Israel. But in the end of his life, uh, at the age of 39, uh, Egypt was passing through to fight the Assyrians, Pharaoh Necho, and God sent a warning, don't, don't mess with Necho. And Josiah ignored it, went out, and was killed in battle by the Egyptians. Now Matthew skips two more bad kings to get to the last. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers, verse 11, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Jeconiah is also known in Scripture as Coniah. This guy only reigned three months, and he was taken off to Babylon. And he was so bad, God, there, there's a curse on this guy in Scripture, actually. Actually, his father had, been, had the same thing, but Jeremiah 22 God says, none of Jeconiah's descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. That's not good, guys. You know, how, how's Jesus going to be king if this is his, you know, he's a descendant? Of the, well, the great thing is, this curse could have excluded Jesus' claim to the throne if not for God sovereignly bringing about the marriage of Mary and Joseph. Joseph was his legal, but Mary was his blood because she was also related to David through his son Nathan. And you can see her genealogy over in Luke chapter 3 if you're interested. But this is Jesus' own lineage. 
and especially the kings, show us, demonstrate to us why God came to save us. Verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, Sheltiel begot Jerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliud, Eliud, sorry. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And we know next to nothing about these folks. But there's one thing that's sure about them. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us there were none righteous. They all are sinners like us who deserve to die and go to hell. Except Jesus. Verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon, 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until Christ were 14 generations. Now this lineage, we know it doesn't include everyone. Perhaps Matthew set it up this way, 14, 14, 14, so it would be easy to maybe memorize and remember. We don't know. But Jesus' lineage and the people in in it emphasizes the fact that it's all about what Jesus has done for us. Praise the Lord. Amen? Not what we've done. It's what he's done. People in Jesus' lineage were flawed and imperfect, a motley crew, a lot of wicked, evil people. And some did some good, but even fewer had a heart for God. And if there were people in Jesus' lineage who pleased God, we know this about them. They were people of faith. We know this that, the, that they were people of faith if they pleased God because of what Hebrews eleven six tells us. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. But when you come to God, you must believe He exists and He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Faith in God. Let me say that again. Faith in God. It is the dividing line between who's in God's kingdom and who isn't. It's the dividing line Faith in God and His covenants and His promises is the dividing line between all people, not just those in Jesus' genealogy. You believe God exists, or you don't. You believe God is good, or you don't. You believe in Jesus, the Son of God, that He's your Savior, or you don't. Those who turn from their sin believe and are born again become a part of God's kingdom, the kingdom Jesus is revealing forever. Those who don't repent, believe, and become born again are left out forever. Can I say this to you? Don't be left out of God's kingdom. As a member of God's kingdom, as an ambassador of Christ, if you don't know the Lord, I implore you, be reconciled to God. If you're not sure... Oh, you know you're not a part of God's kingdom. I urge you right now, before this moment passes, turn from your sin. Believe and ask God to forgive you and do his work of salvation in your life. The miracle of being born again. It's incredible. Become a part of Jesus' eternal kingdom today. You know, nothing else matters if you're not a part of God's eternal kingdom. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Betrothal was another step in the marriage process in those days. Most of the marriages were arranged by parents. And when that arrangement occurred, man, you were engaged. I mean, kids would be engaged at one day old. You know, but you weren't really like locked in on you're going to get married until you got betrothed at some point when you got older. Then, if you were betrothed, it was a done deal. The only way you could get out of it now was to get a divorce. And that's where Mary and Joseph were at in their relationship when all of a sudden Mary shows up pregnant. And the news of her pregnancy, you know it must have devastated him. And and, and you'll see that in in the next verses that he really cared about her. Because it says, verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. It'd be like one of the young girls in in our youth program showing up. And, you know, you just think, man, this girl loves God. She's, man, she's like, she's awesome, you know. And then she's she's pregnant. You know, and we, what? How? Who? Who? And then she just mentioned, you know, in her loving way, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we believe you. You know. You know, and that's, that's how everybody, you know, they were, they were probably looking at her. And you know, Joseph, that's how he looked at her. He was so torn. He, he, you know, he's saying, I guess, I guess, it says in the ESV, divorce. I guess we'll just have to get a little private divorce. I don't want to embarrass her. We'll keep it hush-hush. I, I love that girl so much. I don't, want to, I don't want to embarrass her. It says in verse 20, While he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Sound familiar? Didn't we just read this? Which is translated God with us. Yep, it's that prophecy God gave to King Ahab. And Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of the prophecy which God gave during the time of an utterly wicked dude who didn't even care about hearing what God had to say, not even ask, didn't even want to hear. God wanted to give him a sign. Well, I don't care. I'm not going to tempt him. Yeah, and that's how God is towards all of us guys. Hey, if you're feeling down about yourself, if you've come to realize, you know, man, I haven't been living for God. It's all right. There's hope. You know, that's why God came to Ahaz. (laughs) Wicked guy. And he uttered that prophecy even during his reign. This is going to happen. My son's going to come. He's going to die. He's going to become the one among us. Jesus is the obvious fulfillment of this prophecy. And he truly lives up to his names. Jesus, the name Jesus, the first name he says, means Jehovah is salvation. And of course, we know Emmanuel means God with us. So Jesus, 
the Son of God, born of the Virgin, took on flesh and became Emmanuel, God with us, and became the Savior of the world. That's the gospel, guys. It's good news. That's why we're in this room today, because of what Jesus did, coming like that. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. I've had a lot of dreams, guys. Wild dreams. How did Joseph know that this wild dream was from God? You ever ask yourself, how did he know? I don't know. We don't know. But here's the thing we know. If God wants you to know that a dream you have or whatever is from him, then guess what? You'll know it. Because we don't rely on our ability to hear. Too often I think, oh, I'm not hearing. Oh, I'm not listening. No, just sit still. God will make it clear to you. You'll know. You know what? It'll be something you're going to go, I'm going to act on that. You, you, you're in a situation right now where it doesn't matter what it is. We were talking, I was talking with Andrew, buying a house. You know, or you know, anything in your life. Well, just pray. And then Wait. What am I waiting on? God will show you. You'll know. His peace. That's what you're looking for. Pray till you have His peace, or till He gives it to you. And let that rule in your heart. And then act on it. That's faith. That's acting on faith. That's hearing His Spirit speak to you, and then moving out. And that's what we, Joseph, man, he was a great example of this. And so, just sit back. Ask, and then sit back, and ask God, what are you saying to me? And he, depend on his ability to tell you. Verse 25, and Joseph did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph steps out in faith and, mar and gets married to a woman pregnant with a child that is not his, but he knows the child is God's. He knows it. And he doesn't consummate the marriage until she, the child, is born. Much is made of the Virgin Mary, and it should be. She is quite a girl. But Joseph is also a great example to us, isn't he? A person of faith who pleased God through his actions of obedience. May we be like him. So that's chapter 1 of Matthew. And I love the book of Matthew, guys. It goes through and it does, Matthew does an incredible job of revealing to us just what God's kingdom is like. Jesus the King. And I love the Sermon on the Mount. That's Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom, where he really paints a picture of his kingdom. And it's totally different, like I said, to the religious kingdom of the world, to any of this world's kingdom. We've talked about that. And as we go through, it's just so enlightening. And so today, uh, you know, I'm not going to teach Matthew 2 next week. We'll be back, you know, with Tyler and everything. But what, so what I did was I intended in doing this to whet your appetite to stir up a hunger in you, to get into Matthew's gospel, to study it for yourself. You know, read it, pray about it. You know, there's some great other, you know, listen to commentaries, read them, you know, and God will speak to you about his kingdom. And it's, it's glorious, man. I, I look, hey, all the gospels are that way, but I really, my intention was to stir up your hunger today to get into the gospel of Matthew for yourself.